Hey, Sandy and Nora fans, Nora here. We are on vacation for a couple of weeks, so I've decided to drop an episode from my other podcast called 30 Wood. This is a conversation between me and Colleen Cardinal. I hope you can stick around to listen to it because it's really, really good. Colleen is an amazing activist for 60s scoop survivors. Whether you know lots about the stories of 60s scoop survivors or you've never heard any of them, this is an episode you don't want to miss. This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with Colleen Cardinal. Colleen is an amazing activist. She organizes national events for survivors of the 60s scoop and is currently working on a project to map every survivor, regardless of where they're located in the world. We talk about activism, how a boring office job actually led to Colleen writing for Fernwood, and what's next for 60s scoop survivors. Colleen's book, Opikihaken Opime, Raised Somewhere Else, was published by Fernwood in 2018. Colleen Cardinal, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me today. Can you introduce yourself to listeners who either are familiar with some of your work or maybe even most of your work or who don't know your work at all? Wow, that's a big paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I kind of... I started off doing this work, uh, never intending to do this work, but getting into it because it had impacted my life and my sister's life and my children's life so much that um, it kind of drove me to like want to find other survivors and nobody else is really doing this work at the time when we started. Um, there was like little pockets of people, but no, nothing formally organized. So we thought, you know what, let's see what happens and let's have a gathering here in Ottawa and let's draw on the work that we know how to do, which is grassroots work and working within community with allies and um, folks who are, you know, doing radical work. And it just kind of built upon that. And those people are still very much a part of the work, but it's grown kind of nationally and We've had five national gatherings here in Ottawa, which I've hosted and organized and got funds for and organized funds for, uh, along with uh, my colleague, Elink Gnosway. Um, Some people started the journey with us. Some people are no longer on this journey with us, whether they've passed away or they've just like fallen away from the work. But um, it is uh, definitely challenging work to work with 60 Scoot survivors. It's also rewarding work to work with 60 Scoot survivors. Um, especially when you're a survivor yourself, you kind of know what you need, but you also have to recognize you need to like take care of yourself too while you're doing this work. Yeah. I am originally from Saddle Lake, Alberta, Saddle Lake First Nation, Alberta. I was born in Edmonton and adopted and raised in Ontario, in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Um, and, you know, on my journey, it's led me back to Edmonton, but it's also... It's landed me here in Ottawa, and this is my home now, where my children and my grandchildren are. Mm. The work that you do with 60 Scoop Survivors is, uh, in real life, it's you're you're bringing people together, you're creating that community. How did that 
translate into you deciding to write a book about your own experiences as a survivor? You know, that, that book probably was never meant to be published. Um, it was more of um, a way to get what happened to me out of my head and onto paper so that one day my children's children and maybe their children would have a narrative of what happened so they wouldn't be searching for answers or for, um, you know, because I didn't have that narrative as an adoptee. Nobody gave it to me. Nobody said, okay, so here's what happened, you know, colonialism and <laughs> all these things, you know, nobody sat down with me. I had to figure it out myself and it was painful and it took half my life. I, it wasn't until I was like, gosh, almost 40 that I, I, you know, discovered my mother went to residential school and and then the pieces started clicking. And so I, I don't want that for my children and I want them to understand like, holy moly, you know, the people that came before you went through a lot and we're still going through it, but there needed to be a record of it. So the process of that led me to meeting other survivors in the community and and it's led me to opportunities where I, you know, have traveled to to give workshops or like um, lectures at conferences. I've met thousands and thousands of survivors now since I started doing this work. That must be so amazing. That must just feel so wonderful to meet and organize with, with other survivors. Yeah. It, I mean... It has ups and downs for sure. Everybody's in different places of their healing, right? So sometimes as survivors, we don't recognize, you know, that we still have work to do on ourselves or that we might be like projecting things, even myself, right? So I've had to unlearn a lot of things and relearn and heal, you know, um, because we're raised in um, these these very um, colonial households with these very heteronormative, unbelievably um, constricting life, life circumstances where we only seen white people. We never seen anybody else as we were growing up in these adoptive households. So we adopted all those, their belief system, everything. So undoing all that harm is hard. Um, you have to first be aware of it and, and acknowledge that it, it exists, right? And then do the work of unlearning that harm. And some of us aren't there yet. Some of us are very much still, you know, um, caught up in that. And maybe they'll never get out of it. But we're here and holding space for when you, you're there. Um, not that we're saying, you know, you can't come and, and do work with us. It's just like when you have a mentality of things are only this way because my white family said so or this is what I know to be normal, normal. Um, and then you unlearn that, your whole world opens up a little bit more and um, you have more room in your heart, I guess, for um, your culture and your identity. Um, it's, a, it's a really messed up place, honestly, to tell you how messed up it is for adoptees to unlearn everything they knew um, about growing up in a, a non-Indigenous environment, household, schooling, everything. Everything you know has kind of been a lie, and and now you have to unlearn that and learn what the real history is, which is painful, painful for us. Mm. 
What's the role that storytelling has played in that process of unlearning and then relearning? Storytelling, my storytelling and, and adoptee storytelling is uh, you're in control of it. Um, it's a healing. It can be healing. I, I can't say that for everybody. Some people, you know, can be very painful and, and um, difficult. But you're in control of your story and how it goes, whether it's good or bad. Uh, for me, even the bad parts, I got to tell it from my point of view and how I experienced it. Whether it was happening to the people in my life, let's say my sisters or my brother, my adoptive brother and my adoptive parents, I got to see it as I experienced it. And that's my story. And they can't do anything to change that. So it was it was empowering for me to be able to have a voice and say, I was a child, I went through these awful things, and now I'm an adult, and I'm also in control of my story and how I tell it. Whether it's, you know, awful, and there was some awful parts of um, acknowledging, you know, shitty behavior or harm that I've done to people, I'm in control of that. Um, and And admitting it and saying yes i was this person it kind of helps other folks understand that okay you know what like i was doing these things and i done these things to people and here's the reasons why i might have done it i might have been acting out i might have been you know contributing to something else but i acknowledge i did these awful things and i'm willing to learn and change from it because there was things i was ashamed of you know, of of growing up in an adoptee household, of growing up and being a young adult and being racist. I didn't know I was racist. I just assumed that's how everything is because that's how everybody around me acted. And everybody around me was non-Indigenous. So I thought it was okay. And until somebody challenged me and said, hey, that's racist. You can't talk to people like that. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm racist. How can I be racist? You know? So things like that, uh, unlearning homophobia, um, just even like the the individualism, you know, we're an island unto ourselves and it's all about us and our success instead of like investing in community and people and all of us will rise together. We're not taught that growing up in white households. We're taught to succeed and co- compete against everybody, even even other adoptees. That's why it can be difficult to work with adoptees because we're taught to compete and to be the best. There is no best in this. You know, we all need to rise together. We all need to heal together. We all need to be there for each other. So it can be difficult to find a balance in this kind of work. Mm. Yeah. What was the process like writing the book? Did you consider yourself a writer when you started it? Or did you just kind of think, I'm going to put some words down and see what comes out? And then a book appeared. <laughs> yeah. So the the process of writing was a funny one. Um, I was a mental health crisis counselor for many years before that. I'm, I was trained in addiction counseling and crisis counseling. I worked in different scenarios with um uh, folks living with severe and persistent mental illness. Um, and then, of course, in a crisis shelter, me, myself, being somebody who experienced crisis and still hadn't really addressed my stuff. So I took a break from that. It was burnt out. And I took an administrative assistant course and got hired at the AFN here in uh, Ottawa. 
very easy job, mindless, boring, nothing like exciting, except it wasn't like that. It was actually, um, most days were pretty boring and I would write at my computer because my only job was to greet people and answer the phone. That was it. I did no work um, and I was paid for this. <laughs> so I started writing every day, everything that I can remember right from the beginning in a linear order. And it was, it came out easily because it was all in my head. And I wrote and wrote and probably wrote for like eight, eight months, maybe every day. Um, and finally I, I had like, gosh, I don't even know, like lots of pages. I printed them all out at work. <laughs> and, uh, I took them home and I put them away and I didn't know what to do with them. I never intended to, to publish them. I just wanted to get them down on paper. I did start letting people read them like close friends of mine and, um, People were actually gave me some negative feedback. They were like, this is too hard to read. It's um, traumatic because there was a lot of abuse in it. So I kind of like stopped showing people my work. I never considered myself a writer at all. I just had a story in me that I needed to, to tell. Um, whether it got published or not was not my concern. But what happened was uh, a couple of years later, a friend of mine approached me and said, oh, I want to collect 60 Scoop Survivor stories and I want to publish them. And I'm like, eh, I might have something. I don't know. And I decided to share it with my good friend Raven, Raven Sinclair, who's um, a, a published, amazing author herself and a good friend of mine and a fellow adoptee. So she read it and she read it all in one night. She says, oh my God, Colleen, this needs to be published as a standalone book on its own. It's rough. It's a rough, but with help, we can help you get it edited so that it reads better, that it has proper grammar and, and so on. So she sent me, she sent a copy of it to the publisher at Fernwood and they read it and they liked it and said it needs to be finished. And it hadn't been finished. I'd only written the bad stuff, all the abuse I had suffered, all the hard stuff I'd been through. Um, during this process of writing over the two years, a good friend of mine, Kristen, was kind of helped me with understand like, not just my experience as an adoptee, my sister's experiences, but the whole system of how this didn't just happen to like me and 20 other thousand survivors it collectively happened to all First Nation people in Canada and Métis and Inuit. And, and this is how it happened systemically. So she kind of broke it down for me. And I was just like, oh, my God, how come I don't know this? How come people don't know this? And it's like something that's really only taught if you're interested in it in college or university, if you take a special course, right? Like in, in college, it would be like if you're working in the helping field, you, you get and you have you may have Indigenous clients, you have to learn a little bit about their history. You may get like a, a one week course on it or something. Same with university. Like if you're working with Indigenous populations, you'll get a little like a little bit of it um, in some of your courses like criminology or human rights or something. But unless you actually take an Indigenous course that's devoted to unlearning all this stuff, you won't get this. So typically Canadians don't know this thing, this this history, um, unless they've explored it on their own through grassroots work or their own um, 
their own desire to learn or they've got formal education. So it was wild for me to hear about like white supremacy and how it's built into the making of Canada and how like, you know, the 60s scoop was, was a continuation of, of, you know, taking us away from our land so that the government could get at our, our resources and, and continue to make money. Um, and it enraged me, honestly, it enraged me that it was so it was done in a way that the government um, um, gave this narrative of benevolence that they did this in our own best interest. <laughs> you know, maybe 20 years ago, I might have believed that maybe, you know, when I was younger, I might have said, oh, but they were just looking out for us because my parents were drunks. But then when you when you realize that, you know, my parents didn't have any control over over their period of their life either, that they were forced to go through residential school and these awful things happened to them. So that narrative is so important and, and the context of what's happened was important. So this helped me in writing my book and understanding like why I went through these things with my sister and why collectively we went through these things. It's not just about the adoption. It's a larger system of land and money. So that was a lot. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's that's that's great. And I'm wondering, so then the process of editing, how how did you experience that? How did you how did you go through that and having to, you know, either, you know, love your words, fight with your words, get your words into some sort of uh shape that uh that eventually got published? Oh gosh. The editing process, nobody prepared me for that. Like I can, you know, I must have read my book 500 times. I absolutely hate it now. Um, not hate it, but I just don't like it. <laughs> it, was, it went from, you know, having to not only finish the story up until present day at the time before the book was published. So probably about 2000 and um, gosh, I don't even know the years, but I had to finish it. And people wanted to know how I went from this person over here to the person I am now and doing the work I am, I'm doing. Because it's obviously two different people, almost. It feels like two different people. Um, and writing about the the good stuff was harder. Because it meant, you know, addressing, uh, talking about things that, um, it it's kind of like introspection and looking at yourself and saying, wow, I've done a lot of stuff. I've done a really amount of healing and and translating that into words and and um speaking about like who helped you with this um acknowledging people that helped you and so editing took a long time um there was processes that um I didn't like where I had to like take out certain things in the book because the lawyer went through it their lawyer went through it, um and said you know we can't really print this because uh, you know, this this may come back to bite you if you don't have proof or, you know, this person can sue you. And I'm like, oh, man, I had to change locations. I had to change certain names. So that that's hard. Um, but it's also terrifying when it came to the part of publishing. And I'm like, oh, my God, did I share too much? <laughs> you know, like, I really, I really put myself out there for judgment, and and then it was going to be like it's okay. 
I didn't do anything wrong. I was just a child. You know, I've been blatantly, blatantly honest. And, and I hope that came across to people that I wasn't just like wanting people to feel sorry for me. I was holding myself accountable for shitty behavior, for, you know, things that I had a lot, I didn't have a lot of control over as a child, as a young person, as, as a youth. I think a lot of 60 Scoop survivors, even residential school survivors, we blame ourselves for what we've been through and how we've acted. And therapy helped me with that understanding. Colleen, you know, childhood sexual abuse and, and physical abuse is not your fault. The way that you, you know, um, coped with that trauma may have hurt other people, but at the time, that's all you knew. And you need to forgive yourself and make amends if you can. And I tried um, to the people that I could, you know. So that was the hardest part about editing was like having to take out some things that I thought were important. Even if I couldn't prove them, I still wanted people to know about it. The cool thing was like when the book was released and people read it and it took a while for like it's still being it's still in circulation, like it's still very much relevant. I still give a lot of lectures, especially in uh, universities. Um, you know, people still ask me who my brother is or, oh, I didn't know that was your brother or I didn't know that was your mother. They're, they're really like shocked when they find out like the, the actual names of my adoptive family and uh, or they figure it out. They're like, you're talking about this place. You know, and I'm like, yeah, oh, oh, I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> you know, so it's wild to hear the feedback. Some people are like, I knew that was happening to you. We knew that. And and other people are like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And And they're just shocked. So that part's cool, I guess. What about the reaction from people who had never heard of your story at all or who didn't know you? Was it, uh, did you get to do a launch and share the story with, with complete strangers? And, and how did people react? Overall, the, um, you know, the, the feedback and the reviews have been great. You know, people have been very encouraging, uh, just blown away by um, the amount of, of introspection, uh you know how the journey i guess from coming from this person who who's been through so much so much physical and sexual abuse as a child as an adult and then just one day said i'm done i'm not doing this shit no more like i'm not going to let anybody ever hit me again you know um and taking control of my life that's been an inspiration for a lot of folks um and even like being so open and honest about the behaviors that I exhibited. Like one of the things I was the most ashamed of, I think, as a child was headbanging. And as a child, I would bang my head every night before I went to sleep. I didn't realize that that was a, not a good thing to do. It was just what I did to cope. And I probably did it up until my young adult life. Um, I was deeply ashamed of it. It was like worse than being caught masturbating, right? So when I finally addressed it in therapy and brought it up with my therapist, and like I said, I'm so ashamed of this. I don't know like why I did this and people tease me. My friends would tease me if I went on sleepovers and whatever. And, but it's the only way I knew how to cope. And she finally gave me insight into it and said, you know what? Like, this is all you knew as a child. This is how you coped. 
and I don't do it anymore. Uh, thankfully, through therapy, I was I was able to undo that. Um, but uh, being honest about that is so hard, you know. And I want other people to know that, you know, the things that we've done to cope and survive. Sometimes we are so deeply ashamed of it, but that's all we knew. And helping normalize that for for folks um, is one of the things I get the most feedback for is normalizing coping mechanisms and surviving. Now, you'd mentioned that this that the, the book came out of a period of time in your life where you were bored at work. And I know <laughs> that you are not bored at work these days. Mm-mm. Do you think you have another book in you? Yes, I do, actually. Yay. I don't have time to write it. But I do have another <laughs> book. And I have a story. And it's so weird how the story came to me. It actually came to me in a dream. I took that dream to Elder out in Alberta. Cause I didn't know what to do with it. But it was a significant dream. And I haven't dreamt. I don't just dream. You know, there's dreams every night. And then there's real significant dreams that have meaning. And, and I believe in it. And it came back to me as something to do with missing and murdered Indigenous women, death, and stars. <laughs> it's just a, I have most of, like, the outline of it written. I have not had time to write it. And I, I need a period of boredom, I think. <laughs> I need to get an administration job, which I actually do at home right now. I don't have time for it. Um, but yeah, I've been wanting to write a book again um, and kind of pay homage to a period in my life where I lived out west and um, women were going missing and murdered around Edmonton um, like like 35 at that time um they were being left in fields and unfortunately one of them was my late sister-in-law and i've always wondered about that that what happens to their spirit um when they die where does it go who prays for them you know uh you know because when we have a loved one that passes away like say you know somebody who we see every day or every second week or whatever there's a whole ceremony process that we go through and we you know feast their spirit and we have all these formal um things that we do but what do we do for the ones that are gone missing and either haven't been found or um or found years later what is that process like so the story is uh is part of that, but it's also part of like, um, you know, it's it's more of a calming story to give comfort to families of women who've gone missing and murdered and their spirits um, transition to the spirit world. It's 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 a heavy story actually. <laughs> I said it to my late friend and she's like, wow, that's heavy. It's interesting, but I don't know if people will read it because it's too too close to us. And I said, no, no, I think they will. I think they'll read it. Um, it's not going to be all about just death. It is important to talk about death. It's important to talk about those ceremonies we do and to talk about afterlife and um, to take away that that shame and guilt and anger that surrounds even suicide, you know, how do we feast our loved ones and how do we, what happens to them in the afterlife? 
um, and I've been consulting with an elder. It's a very sensitive topic to to write about. So, but to me, like I I, I totally believe in uh, transitioning from from you know physical to spiritual, and I'm hoping to offer some comfort and support to missing and murdered Indigenous women families. Um, because I also had a sister murdered, a sister and a sister-in-law murdered out west, and uh, you know there was things that I needed um, to know and to to learn to help me in my grieving and help me understand what happens to their spirit when they've taken been taken so violently. So those are some of the things that I want to write about. Mm. Well, I hope that you do get that period of boredom because I think that that is a story that needs to be put into the world. What is next for you uh, for for activism? Talk a little bit about the gatherings that you have coming up. Oh my gosh. Right now I'm organizing a gathering in Ottawa in a couple weeks. Um, Back in 2018, we launched um, a GIS mapping project that would show the displacement in real time of 60 scoops survivors across the world. Um, so that project took a couple years to get going. It was hard to find funding for it because it wasn't considered a fundable project because it had to do with GIS maps, but it also was kind of like a social social justice story. So people weren't running to running behind me to say, hey, take our money. It, it was hard to sell. People, a lot of people don't know about the 60 scoop either. So there's a whole context I had to give to people. So the map is up and running, and we had about 112 people interact with it. Um, there is a place for video stories, but people don't know how to do that. So what we've done is we wrote to the 60 Scoop Foundation, who has some money, um, and they gave us some money to bring up to 15 60 Scoop survivors from all over, um, all over the world to Ottawa to record their video story to feature on our map so that we could highlight the 60 scoop and and provide like um, some awareness, education. Um, and these people deserve, you know, a platform to share their stories. One of the things that 60 scoop survivors haven't got is a national plat- platform. Um, we have no commemoration funds. We have no, we have a 60 scoop foundation um, I don't know really what they've done except give out funding. Um, but what we need is an inquiry. We need to know. Um, we need to have a process like the TRC, like the residential school survivors had. And we've been pushing for that. And it needs to be run by survivors, um, not by government entities. So just give us some money. We know how to do the work. <laughs> <laughs> we know what we need to do. And if you're not going to do it, we're going to find a way to do it and we'll do it. And I think we're in a process of trying to find funds to um, do a kind of platform, not just this GIS mapping, but like an inquiry into how people were trafficked through the child welfare system and how it is still a continuation of, you know, genocide and has been a continuation. So that's part of the work I'm doing. So this, this next project is, the mapping and the video storytelling. Um, and then we're pushing for some kind of inquiry process, uh, future gatherings, um, 
building momentum with um, survivors through online chats, um, supporting each other collectively wherever they are, whether they're in New Zealand, Australia, uh, Spain. Um, some of the survivors that are coming here are from Spain, from the United States, from um, all over Canada. So it's going to be quite a an awesome gathering and launch. Wow, that's so exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's been a great um, journey. And at one time, I I have to tell you, I got burnt out. I was burnt out from doing this work. It is very hard and difficult to work with folks who may be lashing out or, you know, whenever you're in a position of leadership, there's always a few people that are, it's their mission to make your life difficult. And that's been difficult for me. Um, you know, I don't consider myself a leader, but I've been put in this position of like organizing these events. Um, and uh, navigating uh, spaces and giving um, presentations. I don't just talk about my life. I talk about collectively what survivors are going through and the kind of supports they need um, and what is lacking in our current, um, our current all across the board nonprofit <laughs> organizations because a lot of them have no mm -hmm. idea how to work with us or what our needs are, and, and most people don't. Um, we're very different from residential school survivors, whereas residential school survivors came to one location altogether, whereas we were taken and isolated in thousands of locations in white communities and schools and so on. So we've grown up in these silos and you know, are still searching for biological family members and still trying to fit into our communities. And, you know, it's just, it's a, it's going to be a lifelong process for us, you know, to, to come even to come full circle if, if any of us do. The one question that I'm asking everybody that's participating in this podcast series, and it won't probably surprise you, that's a very important question when we're talking about Fernwood. Why is radical independent publishing important today? I believe that if I would have had any other editor besides Fernwood, uh, my story probably would have came out different. It might have been whitewashed a bit, and it might not have addressed the systemic issues. Um, I think I was allowed to write more freely and speak more freely about, about um, colonialism in Canada. I think, you know, many organizations or publishers are maybe afraid of the backlash they might get or um you know it's almost it's there's almost like this this mentality that if you're radical you're a troublemaker or um <laughs> it's such a weird thing to say radical when it's just the truth you know it's truth telling and it's almost like people are afraid of it they want a feel good story and Sometimes it's not a feel-good story. Sometimes our stories are just trauma, 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 trauma. <laughs> um, fortunately, like I was able to like turn my life around, but not everybody's like that. Not every person has this ability to do that. So radical storytelling is important that, yeah, I was a 60 scoop survivor. Yeah, I went through all these things, but things are still really messed up and not being afraid to say that. This is what needs to happen. Canada needs to like... Um, 
Canada's citizens need to address how they've contributed to this. Like, um, I love Friendwood. I love all their <laughs> their 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 books. You know, <laughs> um, as soon as as soon as they agreed to pick me up, I was like, for me, it was a victory. Um, I don't know if I would have felt mm. the same way about other publishers. Uh, I'm pretty loyal to Fernwood because they do write radically, or they support radical, radical artists. So um, it's important to have the truth, whether the truth hurts or not. So I support that. To finish this episode, I have a couple of rapid fire questions. So questions where there's only a couple of words, and um, and so let's get into it. The first is a two-part question. Where is your favorite place to read, and where is your favorite place to write? I actually don't read. I haven't read in a long time. Um, only only academic books, like for courses. I haven't actually read a book in forever, so I have, I have no place to read. Um, but if I did, it would be in bed. Um, when I used to read, it used to be in bed. And when I write, I have to be sitting up at a desk, like a formal desk at a desktop to be productive. Mm. Well, that leads into the next question. Do you have a formal ritual that you have before you're ready to write? Yes. <laughs> I have a, a smudge. I definitely have to smudge before I write so that I write authentically um, with ancestors' help and that I don't do any harm, but also impart knowledge. And then I have my cup of coffee, whether it's decaf or um, regular, and my bottle of water on standby. Um, that's my process with maybe some music in the background, some Beyonce or Rihanna. Um, that's my writing process for anything, even working, like even today, before I got ready to come onto the phone, I got my water and my coffee. <laughs> Me too. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, what are you doing these days in between all of the work you're doing? What are you doing these days for fun? I have four granddaughters and Ooh. I all my free time is spent with them. We go swimming, we go to farms, we, you know, we watch TV, there's there's so much we do. I'm I'm always trying to do things with them. So they are my um my free time. Is there a book uh that you've read in the past that you say has really changed things for you? Midnight by Sister Soldier. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, their book is so good. Um it kind of like it gave me a different I don't I don't know. I guess it was just I really uh it was about um they were raised there. It's obviously like a, a black writer. Um, and it just talks about like him and how he loves another woman and how he interacts with the woman. And it just kind of gave me an insight into like how love could be and what lo healthy loves look like. And it's just, it's such an amazing story because his roots are so um, simple he starts off very poor and he, he builds himself into a, a beautiful young man who loves his, his mother and his, his girlfriend. Um, and you got to read it. It's called, it's called Midnight by Sister Soldier. Sister Soldier. It's a beautiful book. Awesome. Awesome. The last question is, who is someone you look up to? Uh, Raven Sinclair. Dr. Raven Sinclair. Yeah, she has been a, a wonderful mentor. She is so strong 
but also vulnerable. Like she's really, as I've gotten to know her, she's become a good friend. At one point, you know, she used to be like this very, um, almost like celebrity to me. And, you know, over the years we've worked together, we've done, you know, we've, we've laughed together and cried together and we've, you know, done amazing collaborations together. And she's become a very good friend of mine and, um, and a mentor when I'm dealing with rough stuff or she knows exactly who I am and sometimes tells me what I need. And I look to her, I look up to her and I also look to her for support. Colleen, thank you so much for this conversation. Where can people find a copy of the book if they'd like to get their hands on it? They would have to go to Fernwood Press and order it right directly from the publisher. Um, some people have gotten it off of Amazon and it's taken forever. I would order directly right from Fernwood Press and you can just look up author Colleen Cardinal and it's 20 bucks. It's not bad. <laughs> It's not that at all. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending this uh, hour with me. All right. Thank you so much for having me and take care. You've been listening to my conversation with Colleen Cardinal as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favorite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. 30 Wood is a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Check out Harbinger's radical left-wing podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes. Pisces years old, lo and behold, a fortress, a magnitude, they can't subdue, liberation is radical, you're telling me my dreams have to be practical, when all these global systems are tyrannical, point of view more than two.